Gracious God, we thank you that you speak to us today. You want to address each and every one of us. Give us ears to hear what you want to say. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, we're continuing in a series of sermons on prayer, and I thought I'd share with you something that Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer in the 16th century, wrote. He wrote a, a letter to his barber on how to pray, Peter the barber. He was a friend uh, of Peter and a lifelong friend, I've read. And so, I guess they had a conversation one time when Luther was in the chair, and he said, well, let me write something for you, Peter, about how to pray. And, and in this letter, he talks about how he, Luther, uses or used the Lord's Prayer in his devotional life. And he says at one point in this letter, he says, Peter, I want your heart to be stimulated and instructed as to the thoughts that should be grasped when you pray the Lord's Prayer. In other words, he said, I don't want you just to mindlessly repeat the Lord's Prayer, but I want your thinking I want your thoughts and your heart to be stimulated as you as you think about what the Lord's Prayer means. This is kind of characteristic of Luther's exaggerated language sometimes. He said, I think the Lord's Prayer is the greatest martyr on earth because it's abused, it's persecuted by everyone. Few people take comfort and joy in its right use. Few people take comfort and joy in using the Lord's Prayer rightly. Well, that's what we aim to do in this series is to use the Lord's Prayer rightly so that we might know the comfort and joy that comes in a relationship with God our Father through prayer. And so we come today to the third petition. We've talked about in the past how the Lord's Prayer is broken up into six petitions. The first three are God-centered petitions. Before we talk about our needs to God, we want to pray to God about His glory. And so the first three petitions are about the name of God, the kingdom of God, and the will of God. We saw that to hallow the name of God, that's the first petition. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. We saw that to hallow the name of God means to set apart the name of God as holy. That the name of God would be honored and revered in our life and in the church and in the world. And then last Sunday we looked at what it means to say thy kingdom come. And we talked about the the different tenses, if you will, of that petition. There's the past tense that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. And there's the present tense that the kingdom of God is growing even now through the preaching of the gospel and there is the sense that and the truth that one day the future is that the kingdom of Christ will come in a full and complete way when he comes again and so today today we focus on this third God-centered petition and maybe this is the most challenging personally of all the three petitions thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will, not my will, be done. Has anybody here ever been labeled a strong-willed person? Ah, Snickers abound. Never, huh? Stubborn, has that ever been a label that people have put on you? Well, 
this prayer is so challenging, especially for maybe people who have been labeled strong-willed or stubborn, because when we pray it sincerely, what we're asking God to do is to bend our will to his will. We're asking God to get involved in our life and to change us for his glory. And I think the challenge of this petition comes out quite clearly when you think about the context that Jesus gives for the Lord's Prayer, the context in which this Lord's Prayer is given, rather, in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, the Lord's Prayer comes right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. and comes in Matthew chapter 6. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is the great teacher. That's a great theme in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is the true teacher of the new Israel, the new people of God. And so he begins to unfold in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, what does it mean to live under the reign and rule of God? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And the point of Matthew's structure with the Lord's Prayer right at the center of it is that this kind of life requires prayer. At the center of the life of somebody living in the kingdom of God is prayerful dependence on our Heavenly Father. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you're going to live under the reign and rule of God, then it means you can't live life according to your own will, and you can't pursue life for your own glory. Paul Miller, who uh, wrote this book called The Praying Life that inspired me to preach a series of sermons on prayer, he says this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, think of your life as a room. To understand the Sermon on the Mount, think of your life as a room with open doors called power, fame, sex, money, spiritual pride. And the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing to his disciples is he's going through their life and just shutting all those doors. And he's saying, if you're going to exercise your will in that way, if you're going to try to go through those doors and attain glory in that way, then you're not living for the glory of God. You're not living under the rule and reign of God. That's why it's so challenging, because we, those are the doors we want to go through. And we want to exercise our will in that way. We want to gain glory by, for example, pursuing wealth. That's a, that's a major path to gaining glory and power in our world today, by amassing great wealth. Well, Jesus closes that door in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy, where thieves break in. Instead, lay up for yourself treasures where? In heaven. So your security is not going to be in the things of this world, but in God. Maybe we're tempted at different times in our life to, to amass or, or to gain power over other people. And oftentimes that can happen in the midst of a conflict. And we want to take revenge because somebody has hurt us. That's a way of, of, of gaining power over others. We say we're not going to forgive them. We're going to try to hurt them. Well, Jesus closes that door in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive because you've been forgiven. See, just all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is just saying these are the ways that the world lives. These are the ways that people in the world try to gain glory for themselves, and those are closed off for you if you want to live for my praise and glory. Even when it comes to using religion. Some people use religion as a way to gain glory. 
And Jesus says to his disciples, I don't want you to do religion like the Pharisees do. It's important for people like me. He says the Pharisees do their religious acts, their acts of piety to be seen by others. They're trying to gain glory through religious power. But when you pray, when you fast, when you give to the poor, do it in secret. Your Heavenly Father sees and he will reward you. So that's why this is so challenging. Jesus is closing all the doors in the Sermon on the Mount to self-will and self-glorification, and then he brings us to the Lord's Prayer, and he says, okay, this is how you're going to do life as my disciple. Looking to your Heavenly Father and praying that God's name would be honored and God's kingdom would come and his will would be done. I heard about a retired athlete an aging athlete who was once famous. He had won some Olympic medals in his... At one point, I think he was a household name. And he was in the habit of carrying around those medals as he got older. And he would show people these medals. And he would say one time, he went around to the passengers and he said, you see these medals? Do you know who I am? funny but it's tragically kind of sad and pitiful he was craving this glory and this honor for himself there comes a point when trying to promote our own glory is pitiful because it doesn't match the reality that God is the most glorious being and human glory and power fades not our dignity our dignity never fades because we're made in the image of God no matter how young or how old we're made in the image of God but God is the most glorious being. And so what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's trying to align us with the reality of the glory of God and God's preeminence. And so he's teaching us to live for the glory of God and his will. And of course, this is how Jesus lived his life. His whole life was submitted to the will of God. Jesus said in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food, the thing that sustains me, that energizes my life, Jesus claimed, is to do the will of the Father who sent him. John 8, 28. I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak only what the Father teaches me. Jesus lived a life of complete surrender to the Father's will, and Jesus faced death in complete trust and surrender to the Father's will. And the most poignant example of that, of course, is the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus is facing the cross, he's facing the agony of, of the cross, the spiritual agony, the, the physical agony, and he's really kind of at the breaking point in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And what does he say? He says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. Three times he prayed that prayer. It's a prayer of complete surrender and trust as he faces the cross. Jesus, us teaches, us, Jesus teaches us how to live. Jesus teaches us how to die. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And so the good news for us, the gospel this morning, is that Jesus Christ live this life of perfect obedience and surrender to the will of the Father, and none of us 
can make that claim. I don't think anybody here would claim that we have lived our life in complete surrender to the will of the Father. But God declares us righteous when we trust in what Jesus has done for us as our substitute. And that's the good news. We are made right in the eyes of God when we look to Jesus as our substitute. He lived the perfect life in our place. He died the sacrificial death for us. He rose to life so that we can have eternal life. And so we're called then not to gain righteousness by living in perfect obedience to God because we can't do that, but we are called to grow increasingly like Christ. If he's our teacher, we're called to obey. If he's our master, we're called to follow him. And that happens in our life as we, as we continually pray through our life, no matter what we're facing, no matter what circumstances or decisions that are facing us. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in this circumstance, in this problem that I'm facing, in the relationships that I'm struggling with. Whatever the issue is, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, in a perfect way, in a complete way, I want to know your will and obey your will. Let me share a couple things as we get towards work towards a conclusion here about how we can grow in obeying the will of our Father. And the first step, of course, is to obey the will of God. You have to know the will of God. You have to hear God speaking to you. You can't obey without hearing. Sometimes in my house, I'll ask Noah Grace to do something. I'll come back later. They're still on the couch. They're still up in the bedroom. The kitchen has not been cleaned. Why didn't you do it? Well, I didn't hear, Dad. I didn't hear you say that. Sometimes I give it a pass. When I was a young boy, I was tested for, sele- for hearing. And the diagnosis was selective hearing. So we know how that is. But we know God's will. God speaks to us through Scripture. In prayer, we speak to God. In Scripture, God speaks to us. And we listen. And if we listen and take time to listen, then there's a rich dialogue that can occur. In our prayer life, God speaks, we listen, we pray back to God about what he said to us. And over time, we gain greater and greater insight into his will. And that's such a great privilege to have that kind of relationship with God. And I know many of you can testify to that, that over as you look back on your life, you can see how you have increased in God's wisdom and knowing his will as you've engaged in prayerful reflection on the scripture. For example, in this decision about church property that we're facing together as a congregation, somebody said, I wish God would just send us an email. <laughs> you know, Donna would one day open up her email. And there's a, a, an email from God, your heavenly father. <laughs> this is what you are to do. Well, God hasn't sent us an email about it, but God has sent us a series of letters in the New Testament about how we are to relate to one another no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what decision we're facing. And we read one of, one of those letters, or an excerpt, or one of the most beautiful things that Paul ever penned in 1 Corinthians 13. Love one another no matter what is happening in the body of Christ. The greatest Christian virtue is love. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And Paul has spelled out what love looks like. And think about this just in terms of 
decision-making in the body of Christ because so often what happens is the body of Christ can be torn into factions over major decisions. But look at what he says here. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So we don't know perhaps God's exact will with regard to the decision that's facing us as a church, but we do know his exact will with regard to how we ought to treat one another as we deliberate. Love one another. And so we can pray, God, let your will be done. Help us to love one another. The other thing that can help us grow in our obedience to the Father's will is to just remember that God is a good Father to us. And so we can trust His will. And that's the foundation of the Lord's Prayer. or Any Christian prayer really is to believe in the goodness of our Father. That He wants our best. That He cares in a loving way for us. So that's why Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer by saying, I want to teach you followers to say to God, our Father, Abba, Father, dearest Father. And when we know that God is good and loving, we can trust him. Wednesday night, Mike McClyman's been teaching a Bible study. If you haven't come, I encourage you to do so. It's been good. It's been rewarding. But on Wednesday night, Mike shared a kind of a simple example to illustrate this point. He said, oftentimes we're like a little child who's coming to, he's he's thirsty, he's got a little cup and he's coming to his father and he doesn't want to give over his cup because he's got a little bit of water still left over. But the father has a pitcher of water, ice cold water, and he just wants to fill that cup to overflowing. But the child is clinging to what he knows and to what he has. When we understand and when we experience the goodness of our father, it gets easier to loosen our grip on our will and say, Father, I want your will to be done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. So whatever situation you're facing, whether it's a crisis of health, whether it's a decision about jobs or vocation, whatever relationship issues are happening, whatever burdens you're bearing, whether it's a relationship in, in family life, in, in marriage with a spouse, with a child, an aging parent, we can come to God and and say, Lord, in this circumstance, trusting in your goodness, let your will be done. I wonder if you're praying like that. I wonder if you're allowing Jesus Christ to close the doors, difficult, but to close the doors to self-will and glorification of the self. I wonder if you're listening for God's will in Scripture. Are you trusting in the goodness of your Father? See, when we pray like that, when we engage with God like that in prayer, we will experience what Luther wanted for his barber friend when he wrote him that nice letter. He said, I want you to know the comfort and the joy that can happen in a prayer relationship with your Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would lead us in that, that you would 
help us all, no matter where we come in terms of, of prayer. Maybe some of us are novices. Maybe some of us have never really taken time to pray. Others of us maybe farther down the road, the journey. But no matter where we're at, O oh God, lead us into a place of deeper surrender to your perfect will for us. And help us to trust in your goodness. God, help us to experience, bless us with an experience of your presence and goodness in our life. Even today as we come to the Lord's table and we take the bread and we take the, the wine. Help us to remember the love that motivated you to give us your only son. And we can know that you're good as we reflect on what you've done in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.